Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show. Today, we are talking about something that I think is pretty exciting and interesting. We're talking about late bloomers. I believe myself to be one of those people, but now I have a companion that can share the reason why late bloomers are so interesting. My guest today is Rich Carlgard. He is the author of Late Bloomers, but I also want to tell you that he's also the publisher of Forbes magazine, a self-proclaimed late bloomer. He had a mediocre academic career at Stanford, which he got into by a fluke, and after graduating, worked as a dishwasher, night watchman, a typing temp, before finally finding the inner motivation and drive that ultimately led him to his current career trajectory. The book we're talking about, as I mentioned, is Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Rich, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Lisa, I'm delighted to be on your show. Me too. I am super excited to talk about this prefrontal cortex of ours. (laughs) (laughs) So let's help our audience imagine where that prefrontal cortex is located. It's above the left eye, roughly. That's where it's located. And that's command central, right? Well, that's command central for what psychologists call our executive functioning part of our brain. That's the part of our brain that allows us to look ahead, to see consequences, to do something today that will put us in a better position tomorrow rather than following our impulses. And the prefrontal cortex, I said in my book, is not fully formed until age 25. And I understand you believe it may be even stretched out longer. And I know some other Uh, prominent neuroscientists are coming around to that view too. But if you think about that in terms of late blooming, here we are at age 16 and we're put in a room and we have three hours to take a test called the SAT. Even at the earliest prefrontal cortex maturity date, we're only two-thirds of the way there for that. And yet increasingly in our society, we're measuring kids at earlier and early ages with tests with with grades, tremendous pressure on kids today, so much pressure today that we even saw uh, kind of the ultimate product of that bad seed a couple of weeks ago with the college bribery scandal. Yeah. And, and all of it is under this mistaken assumption that if we don't bloom early, then we're destined to live second or third rate lives when it, that is just nonsense. Neuroscience, psychology, and all the wonderful stories out there that we know of late bloomers tell us completely otherwise. Let's give some key facts on late blooming. Let's start with a definition of late blooming. When I set out to do this book, I thought that psychologists or neuroscientists might have a definition. And 
when the term would pop up, it was usually to describe some dysfunction. And so rather than seeing late blooming as a, an immense possibility over a long and productive life, it is referred to obliquely in the literature as something is wrong with you. And that made me doubly motivated to write this book. My definition of late blooming is that it is that perfect intersection of your deepest gifts alongside of your deepest passions. And some of us are lucky to discover that intersection earlier in our lives. And for most of us, we won't discover it until later, until our 20s, 30s, 40s, and even beyond. Yeah. When we look at the statistics of the average age of some of the people out there in the world, like you write in the book that the average age of discovery leading to a Nobel Peace Prize is 39, that the average age of a U.S. patent applicant is 47, the average age of entrepreneurship is 47 as well. So there's compelling reasons why we don't hit our stride until the ripe, juicy middle of life. Yeah, but look what popular culture does. Popular culture convinces us that all the entrepreneurs and all the all the bright minds are, are young. There are people like Mark Zuckerberg. There are people like Sergey Brin and Larry Page who started Google as Stanford graduate students. There are people like Bill Gates who started Microsoft after dropping out of out of Harvard. And so it's crept into the popular culture today that all the great achievement and all the great companies are built by these young people, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook being another one. And, and they are wonderful stories. And I have nothing against people who, who achieved early, but they aren't the story that's relevant for the most of us. Yeah. I, you know, I want to just talk about these young sort of savants, these, um, you know, p people who are, you know, become uber rich, uber successful at a very young age. They might possess the IQ. They might be a little bit low on emotional and social intelligence, which the PFC, the prefrontal cortex, it has nothing to do with this kind of book learned intelligence. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. There was a fascinating study that came out in 2015 that doesn't get nearly the attention that deserves. And it was a study done by uh, Harvard, MIT, and Massachusetts General Hospital, led by a woman named Laura Germain. And the question asked, neurologically, when do we peak? And the answer is very intriguing. We peak at different decades of our lives depending on what you're measuring. So if you're measuring rapid algorithmic skills – and synaptic processing speed and working memory, all the things that make you a great test taker, that make you a great software coder under a time pressure, yeah, sure enough, these things peak in our late teens and in our 20s. When you look at our 30s, 40s, and 50s, only then, and, and it, it, it aligns with the maturity of the prefrontal cortex, does our executive functioning begin to peak? Does our empathy, our communication skills our leadership skills, our resilience, all of those things that allow us to bloom at a later age. And then when we get into our 60s and 70s, assuming we stay healthy and we stay mentally engaged, our vocabulary peaks, our grit peaks. Imagine that. And the reason that our grit quotient peaks, according to Angela Duckworth, who made the, the term popular, is that we become much better selectors of when we're going to apply our grit. We don't just waste our grit willy-nilly. So we have all of these unfolding gifts over the many decades of our lives. I really believe that we can bloom not just once, but many times if we have patience and we put ourselves on a path of discovery that allows us to find that intersection 
of our deepest talents and our deepest passions. You write in the book, The Late Bloomers, you talk about repotting yourself in a better garden. Well, sure. You know, some people, I would say the minority of people, but there are people out there, you can plop them down anywhere and they are going to find a way to get networked, to get motivated, to find the right job, all of those kinds of things. My wife and I call it called them the Nancys because she has a friend named Nancy. <laughs> Nancy. So the description perfectly applies. <laughs> you pop down Nancy anywhere, and pretty soon Nancy is organizing this, organizing that, starting companies, etc. There are others of us that will bloom only really in the right circumstances. We're the kinds of people that will bloom if we're at the right company with the right company culture, or will bloom with the right set of friends and colleagues and not bloom with the right set of friends and colleagues. So for people like that, if you're not blooming, you have to think about repotting yourself to different friends, different colleagues, perhaps a different zip code. And if that's not feasible because you're, you have financial obligations, you're tied in, your kids are in a, in a school and you like the school, you still don't feel like you yourself are blooming, then I really advocate, well, find a different set of friends through perhaps a peer group. You can find peer groups through church. You can find peer groups uh, vocationally. Peer groups are really a great way to begin to explore your repotting options because you've got people who have the same concerns and motivations that you do, and you feel like you know them, but you don't know them so well, and thus you can feel liberated to share what's on your mind. Let's talk for a moment relating to repotting oneself, aging out of a company setting. You know, when we have many corporate dynamics, there are a lot of young people, and somebody approaching their 40s and 50s may age out and be replaced by someone who's younger. And the ability to pick up, you know, this is where the grit comes in, right? To quit or move on or course correct or force a sea change on oneself really speaks to this uh, repotting process. Yeah. If you look at someone over the course of their life, everybody is going to peak in their current career at some point. We peak in our technical skill first. We peak in our management skills Second, we peak in our wisdom last. But you layer on to that our motivation or willingness to work 60 or 70 hours a week, either for an employer or for ourselves, and that will peak also. When you're talking about the employer-employee relationship, so many employers have what you might call an up-and-out career track. That is the employee, the successful employee, gets promotions, they get pay raises, they get higher titles. But at some point, the employer wakes up and says, my gosh, we're paying that person a lot of money. And by the way, we need to make room for the up and coming generation. So we stay refreshed as an organization. Let's put that person out to pasture. Then you lose all of this wisdom and you lose all of this know-how of how to get stuff done. So I advocate in the book, rather than an up and out career trajectory, a career arc. Let's all admit that, that people peak at a certain year, and it may be simply peaking in terms of your willingness to hop on a plane and, and spend a week uh, doing sales calls or, or long hours. At that point, what I would like to see happen among employers is a willingness to have a conversation with that older employee and say, look, we can't promote you anymore. We pay you too much now based on your willingness to uh, your your unwillingness to work the hours you used to. And most importantly, we have to make way for the rising talent in this organization. But we really value you. Can we have a conversation where instead of 
being senior vice president, we now call you coach or counselor. We now cut your paycheck by 25% or 50%. We'll allow you to stay on healthcare and we'll allow you to work 30 hours a week. And we want you to be a coach of the millennials and Gen Zs and impart the wisdom that you got in your career uh, with these people because for all their talent, they lack that. Age diversity is one of the most unexplored forms of diversity inside of organizations. It can be very, very powerful. As you're speaking, I wrote down the words multi-generational corporation. And then you said age diversity. In the olden days, there was the multi-generational living arrangements, right? You had the grandparents, you had the parents, you had the children, you had extended family living together because each person had a role in the dynamics of keeping that family alive and healthy. The same thing could apply here to what you're saying. Yeah, without that career arc, the older employee with the high title and the high paycheck is always going to be defensive. They're always going to be defending their turf. And that's the wrap on older employees today. Sometimes older employees are accused of not being able to learn quickly, particularly stuff around technology. Well, I think that older employees who are in a defensive mode just get, you know, they're so intent on protecting their turf that their mind closes down. So you have to remove that. That's why you have to say, look, we're going to take away your title because we have to give it to an up-and-coming star. We're going to have to cut your paycheck because this up-and-coming star is going to have to earn more money or they'll leave our organization. But we really value you. We, we want you to be here. So let's negotiate what the downside of the arc looks like. I'm told that legal departments and HR departments are so bound by their fear of age discrimination lawsuits that they have a hard time having that conversation. But you do see it. You know, you do see it on a law firm when a partner decides to step back and work two days a week and they're now called of counsel yeah. rather than being a, a partner. They're of counsel. It leaves a lot of open space for creativity in how we use people, how we use our greatest resource, you know, and I like what you've written about knowing when to quit or that it's okay to quit. Yeah, we have such a cultural imprint on people that says you can't quit. Quitters never win. Winners never quit. But if you think about it, most entrepreneurs at some point will quit if they see that there's a better use at that moment in time for their time, their treasure, and their talent. We call it a strategic retreat if a military general decides to get out of a hopeless situation and pursue <laughs> something else. You think of Richard Branson. Well, Richard Branson has quit a lot of businesses. He quit Virgin Cola. He quit Virgin Brides. So why can't we give the same message to people that says, again, starting from the point of view, the perfectly rational point of view, at any moment in time, there's an optimal use of your time, your talent, and your treasure, that is your money. And you want to put it to good work. You want to be a good steward of all three of those. And if you're in a futile effort and you're wasting those, then maybe you should think about quitting. So I think that people should have get out of jail cards and they should have quitting cards not to be exercised willy nilly. Nobody wants to become a serial quitter. Nobody. I'm certainly not advocating that people's response to any challenging situation is to quit. I'm saying if you look at the successful people out there, many of them have quit things that simply weren't working or no longer were working. 
Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Rich Carlgard. The book we're talking about today is Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. To learn more, please visit latebloomer.com. You can connect with Rich at Rich Carlgard and on Facebook, Rich hyphen Carlgard. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about the power of patience and the science of resilience, how we create our own success. Let's return to the conversation with my guest, Rich Carlgard. So, Rich, during the break, we talked a little bit about your experience as a student, and I would love for you to share that with our audience. Uh, I was not a good student in college, Lisa. I'll give you a story from my senior year that illustrates that I had a roommate named Bob. Bob was one of those early achievers, hyper-focused, and we would walk to the library every night after dinner, and he would bring his backpack and a quart of Pepsi and yellow highlighter pens, as they used in the day, and he would sit down at the study carol for four hours and study, and then he would come back to his room and write up a 30-page double-spaced paper all in one evening. Well, I thought the key to being a better student was all the stuff that Bob did. So I bought the same backpack. I brought a cord Pepsi. I bought yellow highlighters and off we'd go to the library and he'd find his study carol and I would find mine. But I couldn't sit for more than 15 or 30 minutes before my mind would start to wander away from my subject. And I would head back into the library and I was fascinated with the hardbound collections of magazines. And my favorite magazine at the time was Sports Illustrated. And I read every issue of Sports Illustrated from its inception year in 1954 through the present. Well, needless to say, this did not help my grades in Japanese politics and constitutional U.S. law and economics and all the other classes I was taking. I barely got by. At age 25, while Bob was just finishing an amazing career at Stanford Law School, I was a security guard. I was a dishwasher all the things you talked about in the introduction. And it looked like I'd really blown my college education. And and by one definition, I had. Well, a few years after that, after my prefrontal cortex began to blossom and my brain woke up, I had the opportunity with a friend to start what became Silicon Valley's first business magazine called Upside. And we started it and my friend raised the money and sold the ads and I had to conceive of the product. And I thought business magazines at the time were really boring. I hadn't been introduced to Forbes yet. I just thought they were boring. And I thought the best magazine of all time was Sports Illustrated. So I got the idea that we should do a business magazine that would look and feel and read like Sports Illustrated, that would punch people in the nose, that would give people a good laugh, even as it told these great stories of how business is really done at these Silicon Valley companies (laughs) behind the scenes. And we were an immediate sensation. Two years after founding Upside, Bill Gates gave me four hours of of interviews, which caught the attention of Steve Forbes. And Steve Forbes soon hired me, and I reported directly to Steve Forbes. And it was all because of that, quote, unquote, wasted time in the library stacks when I was a senior in college, which hurt my grades at the time but made my career later on. So my message to people who are blooming is use everything 
in your life. Nothing is wasted. Go back in the library of your life and figure out, well, what are the things that might have value, but nobody thought they had value at the time, and learn how to really leverage that. What you describe is a fertilization process, right? Everything that you were doing, you know, the reading of the magazines was fertilizer for what you were to become. Yes. And I think my professors at the time when I was a senior in college would have used a four-letter word for fertilizers <laughs> to describe the time I was wasting in the library sex. So that's why uh, one of the motivations to write this book now and why I call the early achievement obsession out there and why we have to rebel against that is that we're asking kids to trade their natural curiosity for focus well, you can always focus. Foc the ability to focus will never go away. But the most fertile times for our curiosity are actually when we're young. And if we don't open that window, then it gets a little harder to open that window. So we're doing exactly what we shouldn't be doing as a society when we're telling kids to put away their curiosity and to sit on that study carol for four hours and get straight A's in your advanced placement courses which is really a mechanized process. I mean, what I'm hearing you say is for encouraging people to kind of go with the flow of their curiosity and explore, become an adventurer in your own life. Yeah, I think for the natural early achiever, they have a natural early focus. And that's great. But what if your kids are not those kind of kids? What if they are nature's explorers? So I've figured out in my life that I do much better when I embark on a path of discovery and just simply commit myself to going around the next turn and seeing what's around the next turn. And when I try to commit myself to a hard goal, for some reason, just because of the way I'm wired, it backfires. So I think that I'm, I follow a different drummer, as they say, and I think that late bloomers are people more like me. They follow, they listen to the different drummer, they follow their paths of curiosity. And when they do, they put themselves into that optimal chance of finding, again, that intersection of deepest passions and deepest talents. I love it. Let's talk about our own kids, because between us, we've got kids that are 26 down to 19, right? You've got two 26, you said in 22. Mine are almost 22 and almost 20. And I see in my children, I'd love for you to share about yours, this exploration trajectory, because they kind of knew but don't know, and they've gone and noodled around in their college lives to try and figure it out. And watching that unfold has been quite a beautiful process to witness. Yes. Both of our kids are adopted, and we raised them in our home in Los Altos, California, which is in the heart of Silicon Valley, which is the heart of early achievement central. Yeah. And so to bring a couple of adopted kids and raise them in a part of the world where kids are raised to believe they're second-class citizens if they only get 700s on their math SAT or they only get 3.8 grade averages in high school is a bit of a challenge. And we decided right away that we weren't going to subject our kids to that kind of pressure because, frankly, as adopted kids, their native abilities is nothing that we could guess about. If my wife and I had had biological children, we would know, well, they would have been really nearsighted <laughs> because the two of us are pretty nearsighted, both had LASIK surgery. <laughs> uh, they, you know, my wife is a ballerina. I was a long distance runner. I was a space cadet in high school. There are certain, you know, certain biological things that you could guess about them. But, but since ours are adopted, 
we couldn't make that guess at all. So we decided to, we put them in uh, smaller schools and we decided to let them go their own way. So our 26 year old is a beautiful artist and she has her styling license to cut and color hair. And she works as an office manager at a real estate company and she lives in a beach house in Santa Cruz. She's our hippie child. And what's blossoming about her, about her brain, she didn't go to college, but as this office manager, she's learned on her own how to do bookkeeping and accounting, learned how to engage with, with adults doing business. And I find that quite amazing. So I, I, what I'm hoping is that she can put together this new learning that, that has taken place with accounting and how businesses are set up and operated along with her artistic ability because if she can put those two things together, she will be an excellent hippie capitalist in Santa Cruz. And our, our son is uh, he's in community college at De Anza College in Cupertino, and he is a late bloomer also. He's got this tremendous uh, video shooting and editing skills, and we're really encouraging him on that path. What about yours? Well, my daughter is a senior at the University of Oregon. She is a duck. And she started out in psychology thinking she might want to be a lawyer, and she's ending her undergraduate career convinced she wants to be a registered dietitian and is really into healing with food. And she's found a passion in it. She loves working with the athletic teams. She interns with the Ducks football team and, and helps support them with their nutritional goals. She's pretty cool, but it was a discovery process for her. And my son is a freshman at San Jose State University. He plays D1 water polo for them. And that's all he knows right now. That is his passion. Oh, that's wonderful. That, yeah. That's fantastic. I think they're go both going to do very, very well. And they're, you know what? They're going to do it. The, the great thing about being a late bloomer is when you find that intersection of your talents and passions, you feel like you're pulled. You feel like you're pulled almost by a magical power as opposed to being pushed, pushed, pushed. Because yes. if you're pushed, eventually you, you will be, allow yourself to be pushed into a ditch because you simply won't be able to take it over the long term if all of your motivation comes from being pushed. Well, eventually we spark out. I mean, in my other practice, I end up seeing a lot of clients who have been on the trajectory, you know, where they've pushed hard, they've done everything that they thought they should do to achieve, only to realize that they're unhappy and they're empty in spite of all the achievement, all the goals. One of the most eye-opening interviews I did for Late Bloomers was with Carol Dweck. Now, Carol Dweck teaches psychology at Stanford. Of course, she's known beyond the academic world for her best-selling book, Mindset. It's the book that delineates people of a fixed mindset versus those of a growth mindset. And you want to have a growth mindset to prosper your whole life. And I asked her, how has your book changed the way that academia thinks about achievement? And she said, well, the corporate world has thought about it a lot. One of her biggest fans is Satya Nadella, the CEO at Microsoft. He has everybody at Microsoft read Mindset. The academic world, they're kind of slow, she said. I said, well, tell a story. And she said, and she leaned across her table with a very serious look. And she said, Rich, the freshmen I see at Stanford today, now Stanford today, 3% admissions rate, have to get super high SATs, super high grades, and then usually demonstrate leadership and excellence in some extracurricular. 
She said, the students I see today at Stanford are exhausted and brittle. They don't want to mar their perfect records. And I said, Carol, that's a fixed mindset. That's exactly it, she said. That's why I'm of mixed minds about writing the book Mindset. I'm so glad that it's had traction in the corporate world, but it's not made much of a dent. Well, anyway, she has a really interesting tool now that she uses. She gets these freshmen, these uptight, exhausted, brittle freshmen, to pledge to do something that is out of character and just go for it. And she describes this very shy young man who said, well, I'll tell you what's out of character. Running for president of my freshman dorm would be out of character. (laughs) And he did it, and he won. And he comes back every year to tell her how it changed his life, that he had a fixed mindset that he was a shy kid and he would always be a shy kid, and that had limited his life's trajectory. It probably helped him study because he had no friends, but now he knows he's not a shy kid or a shy young man, and it's just improved his life immeasurably. We are out of time, and Rich Carlgard is going to come back and talk more about what it takes to fertilize and flourish in the ripe, juicy middle of life and beyond. We're talking about late bloomers, the power of patience in a world obsessed with early achievement. To learn more about Rich Carl Garden, his amazing work, please visit latebloomer.com. On Twitter, you can reach him at Rich Carl Gard. On Facebook, Rich hyphen Carl Gard. And of course, you could just hop on over and read a Forbes and know what he's doing over there too. Rich, thanks for joining me. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We are back, continuing the conversation about the power of patience and the science of resilience, how we create our own success. My next guest is Dr. Michael Unger. Dr. Michael Unger is a family therapist and Canada Research Chair in Child, Family, and Community Resilience and the Director of the Resilience Research Center at Dalhousie University. He has published over 180 scientific papers and 15 books on the subject of resilience written for both lay and professional audiences. The book we're talking about today is Change Your World, The Science of Resilience and the True Path to Success. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, real pleasure to be here. Let's just get into this because uh, you and I share some similarities with where our children are at, and uh, we were chatting about our aging parents. So let's talk about this sandwich generation and adults who are in their right middle of life and what many of us are experiencing. Exactly. Um, I seem to have a loft full right now of my children's stuff. You know, it kind of comes back. They they seem to move out and then their stuff kind of comes back, gets stored while they're off on trips. So actually, I have five children and four of them are in their early 20s. So you do see that, you know, you get that pressure from below where they're making decisions and life launching and educational decisions. And of course, there's university to pay for and all these other things. And then, uh, like many people, I'm in my mid-50s. 
we're also seeing uh, older generation. Our parents are, in fact, getting uh, you know much more uh, frail, ill. They're needing much more care and attention. And it does take a certain amount of well resilience, uh, both in terms of being very rugged, you know, keeping your head on straight, keeping you know your yourself centered and and de-stressed a bit. But it also takes a lot of well, as I like to say, both being a, a rugged individual and a resourced individual to really be resilient. And that means also making sure that we have, well, a, a community of care around us. We have people in place to, to help us succeed at these, at these uh, many roles that we have to play, both with our parents, of course, as the, as the child that's going to care for them. And then with our own children, of course, as many uh, tasks involved as they get ready to launch. And I, I got to tell you, this is not an uncommon story currently for many, many of my neighbors and myself and my friends. <laughs> I had it twice yesterday, and that's no joke. Mm -hmm. One with a colleague and one with just a friend, somebody that I was talking with. So yes, this is very topical right now, but I wanted to go back to something you said about the resources. I think our children are used to accepting resources. You know, they expect us to be there. Our parents, on the other hand, might not be as open to accepting those resources. Exactly. And of course, that's the thing with our resilience is very much tied to, well, certainly as we age, two things. One is our attitude towards aging. It's been shown to really have a huge longevity boost. If you, you know, take a sort of a positive, joyful attitude towards the fact that your body is slowly breaking down, that you, know, that you might not be able to do things that you did before, but you have a certain wisdom about it. And, and those kinds of very positive attitudes can really change your, your, indeed, your life expectancy. But it's also about being wise enough to take advantage of the resources that are offered to you. And I think for us as the children of these parents, it's about making sure that those systems are in place to support them. Um, I like to think of it in, in my work on resilience, we talk about two things, and I talk about this in Change Your World, you know, this nice idea of navigation and negotiation. You got to help people navigate to the resources they need. So for that means extra care in the home, people to do the small chores around the house if they're still living on their own. Maybe it's a nursing home or some sort of other sort of care facility. You know, we've got to help people navigate to those resources. But it's also about negotiating. We can never forget that what people accept as a resource is always about whether or not it's, it's well, like culturally meaningful. Does it fit with the way you see the world and who you see as yourself. And if you can get that right, if you, you know, if you can get it so that, that the parent can kind of, in a sense, see themselves in the solution, they're much more likely to accept the care that's offered. Well, I agree with you. And I also draw upon my own experience with this of negotiating support or working towards negotiating support is that oftentimes the parent will want that additional support from the child. That's right. And we can become, in a sense, burdened. I, I mean, I say that carefully, but we, it's not always a burden, but it is that sense of the care, the caregiving falls onto us. And what we know is that our stress levels as that sort of sandwich generation either goes up or down depending on how we approach it. Do we see this as, you know, a, a part of our role? Uh, do we accept this as a meaningful contribution that we're making to you know, our, in a sense, society to our families, to their, to our parents' well-being. But let's face it, a lot of families are also quite conflicted. I mean, not all families are, are, are yes, perfect. I was going to ask you about yeah. that. <laughs> so, and this, you can see how complicated this can get. Then suddenly you're being asked to look after someone who's maybe being a little bit curmudgeony in your life, or maybe even, you know, emotionally abusive or something like that. And then this gets much more complicated because that many people will still, you know, put themselves into that situation to, to provide that care. But 
they're you know or they're trying to offer what's a very reasonable solution i'll give you a, a simple example in my own family my partner her um, parents are, are quite old and her father's like 103 and we made the effort to adapt his uh, bathroom and they still live in the same house that they lived for many many years and we you know the, the kids all got together and did some major renos to the bathroom so it was more accessible and all this kind of stuff but he refuses to use the more facilitated <laughs> bathroom. He'd rather, you know, he'd rather risk his life climbing into the tub in the other bathroom because that's what he's done for basically, you know, 100 years of his life. And he just can't see himself in that in that person that uses that kind of facilitated bathroom, you know, like, you know, the higher toilet and the hand grips and all this kind of stuff. So what do you do? Do you sort of like, you know, it's there, we provided it, we thought it was going to be useful. But of course, it doesn't fit with how he perceives the world. Now, I guess at some point you have a right, if you're 103, you have a right to make your own decisions, right? Yes. And, you know, I think the family provided what they felt they had to provide and they wanted to provide out of love. But ultimately, it's still about the, the elderly parents' decision to, you know, lead the life that they want to lead. And um, this is, in fact, what we're seeing happening. Which is really important to allow others the dignity of their process in all directions, you know, whether well, it's the, the elderly parent or the, or the child who's exploring. <laughs> well, you got that right on the other end of this. Right? It's like, you know, how often do we as parents get into the other one where we're basically helping our children navigate to what we think are, you know, educational opportunities or job opportunities or housing or, you know, we try and help them find whatever. And, they, you know, the young person is just kind of ready to say, no, I'm I'm good with, you know, what I'm doing. And my son was recently living in San Francisco where, you know, rents are super high. And he was he was living in a van. <laughs> that was parked on the side of the road. He was, you know, he bought a van for $2,000 and renovated it into a little house and he was using the the shower at the YMCA and the toilet where he was working and it was a little startup business that they had, you know, one of these uh, new venture things. And like I'm rolling my eyes and saying, would you like a few bucks to offset expenses on some rent, son? And and they're kind of like, you know, it's it's they're making their own way, right? So I think we as as parents you know, ultimately, it's like, I think we can offer what we can out of love. But ultimately, it's it's each generation's prerogative to, uh, you know, find their own course, what they feel comfortable with. But that doesn't mean that we as the sandwich generation caught between are not sort of stressed, because we're, of course, we're constantly thinking about offering resources. Um, yes, and, you know, and we're, we're the ones who are sort of and so ultimately, if I could turn this around, it's also remember, we've got to find our resources, our support systems, uh, while we're going through this. Um, just last night, we had sort of an impromptu uh, dinner uh, where all the neighbors came in and we just had a big dinner over at our place. And I got to say, most of the conversations were pretty darn supportive of everyone sort of talking about exactly these conversations. Um, and there's something about misery loves company. And it is kind of fun to sort of, you know, um, go through this with other people and hear how they're dealing with it as well. Yeah, I, I think maybe that's the support that many of us need to find more of. I know in my case, I'd like more of it. You know, I hear these stories almost every day, you know, on my family's side. I want to ask you about one more aspect or one more flavor to be thrown into the pot here of this stew. And that is when there is ripe emotional material or unresolved material in the relationship with the parents. So you might have had a difficult relationship with your parent and they come to really need your help and support and it, that, that becomes difficult. How do you activate more resilience in that area? 
Yeah, well, very much what I'm what I'm learning is that so if, if I could kind of make this boil this down to something we know about resilience, as stress goes up, as adversity goes up in our lives, positive thinking, just simply changing our thought processes becomes less and less effective. So let me get it straight. I mean, I'm, I'm saying it's really good to sort of get your head on straight to do the meditations, the mindfulness based practices. This is all really important. But what we know from the science side of this on resilience is that if you're also dealing with a lot of other, you know, housing issues, money issues, stress issues, past trauma, violence, whatever, you know, emotional abuse, whatever, as you get into more and more of those things, you're also not just going to have to change your thinking, you're also going to have to change the resources around you. So sometimes if I'm, you know, if I'm thinking about a family where there's a lot of this kind of stress, um, it, yes, you want to say to someone, you know, calm down, take some little personal time. <laughs> But, but you also might want to put a buffer person. This is maybe not the person you don't maybe want to set yourself up so that you're inviting that parent into your home. Maybe you want to set it up so that you're, this is maybe one of those times where you want to prefer to maintain that parent in their own home or some other system and visit them, but also, you know, and, and supplement their income. If you have the means to do so, pay for a nurse or some, or some sort of in-home care that visits that person. Um, and I know this sounds, I'm not trying to sound harsh or unloving, but if there's been a lot of conflict, I think sometimes we make that mistake to say that we should be superhuman and somehow just we can straighten out our emotional space inside us and deal with anything. And that's actually not what the science on this says, nor is it true. In fact, sometimes we need to think about instead bringing in the resources we need to create the buffers. Maybe the kindest thing we can do is not invite you know, a parent that we're in a lot of conflict with into our home because we'll pay a terrible, terrible price on ourselves and our family lives and our kids and everything else. And maybe that's a more where we, the kindest thing is to set them up in a, in an, or maintain them in their own house with the supports that they would need. Um, and I think every family has got to make that, obviously, that's a very almost spiritual decision that they have to make themselves. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Michael Unger. And we're going to talk about the sandwich generations. We're going to continue talking about the sandwich generation resilience and his book, Change Your World, The Science of Resilience and the True Path to Success. To learn more about Dr. Michael Unger and his work, please visit michaelunger.com. On Twitter and Facebook, he can be found at the same handle, which is at Michael Unger. PhD. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious. And happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more.
Welcome back. We're continuing the conversation with Dr. Michael Unger talking about the power of patience and the science of resilience. Let's return to the conversation. So, Michael, prior to the break, you had touched upon the spiritual element or spiritual quality of making the decision of how we support our not only our aging parents, but also our children. Yeah. I, what I often see, I think, and I can certainly identify this in my own life, it's, it's kind of where your, where your mission statement is for your own personal life is. I, I mean, how much you're going to reach out and, and, and the way you, you know, navigate those relationships is going to be partly a, a, a question of your value system, which is, I, I'm going to equate somewhat with your spirituality, how you see the world of what you think is, is the, you know, your moral compass or what is the, the right thing to do. Yeah. And there is a certain, if, if I could say, ruggedness in this. Yes. Go on, go on. Well, very Please. much so. Well, I'm, I'm thinking back to your 103 old relative. And I'm also thinking of my own nearly 94 year old relative because we're both in it, in, you know, as well. Um, when I uh, reached to that moral compass or that North Star, I never question my decisions because I'm always leading by that. When I get cranky because I'm tired, you know, and I'm feeling stressed by other burdens, it's not as easy to focus on that. Well, you made a very big decision, of course, to to reach out and support them and change your own life. Obviously, that I mean, I'm going to assume that came from some inner drive or mission or sense of what's righteous or right in the world. And, and yes, and, you know, there's a moral there's a moral compass there that guides you. And I do think we make these decisions based on that, whether it's with our children or with our parents. We, we, we try and make decisions that are congruent with who we are as best we possibly can. There's a nice resilience effect to that, too, because if we're acting in synchronous, sort of like that's in sync with who we are inside and that how, how we our moral uh, values, we tend to experience less stress. We're, we're less conflicted. And ultimately, no matter how bad it gets, I think we're also, at the end of the day, say, you know, this is... This makes me feel fulfilled. This is this is gives me meaning in life. Um, so there's definitely a sort of a, a, a sort of a rugged aspect of this. It it, it makes us. It is it's an expression of our grit, our capacity to cope, uh, anchored to our belief system. But if I might, our spirituality also anchors us to a set of resources. You know, however you're going to express that, you're probably going to be. Through that expression of that spirituality, especially if it turns into some, you know, if you're, if you're affiliated with some religious organization or, you know, a, 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 some, some direction like that, then of course that opens up a whole set of resources for you, uh, a community to yes. rely upon, to talk to. Yes. Um, uh, you know, let's face it, if you need resources, one of the best places to find them is often in your community. If you're not well communi- connected to your neighbors, then you can bet through your, your, your church, your synagogue, your temple. Um, your mosque, you know, people find those those resources through all those networks of connections, which is often simply a continuum of spirituality or, um, you know, th- th- there's two very different ideas here, religion and spirituality, but they do sort of intersect and both bring a set of, well, resources that you're going to be that much stronger uh, to cope with really challenging situations. And let's face it, being sandwiched, whether it's with your parents or frankly, with our children coming home, the, that, that boomerang generation, 
um, they're going to test us as well. And it's also going to be about our, our mission statement as parents and how what we believe is the right way to help our kids. And let's talk about the cultural element as well to ruggedness and resilience in, in the sphere of our family dynamics, that in the Western world, we tend to operate by a system where the, we raise our children, the children go off to college, they, they're launched, they lead their lives. Our aging parents will be as self-sufficient as possible for as long as possible. They're living on their own. That's typical to Western culture. In other cultures, you know, the multi-generational housing situation is in place for the entire lifespan. Exactly. And even if it's not, I, I, I was actually presenting recently uh, to a to a large audience, and I actually put up uh, some statistics on, you know, that how sometimes we're we're some for all our efforts at being self help, we're actually failing to <laughs> to improve. I mean, yes. you know, stats on loneliness, heart disease, medic, you know, depression medications, uh, uh, you know, all these things are going through the roof despite all the efforts to sort of heal ourselves alone. And what I've actually been arguing about is that, you know, saying, look, I, I think you need, you know, you need to think also about your resources around you. But I, one of the statistics I put up was the fact that, you know, uh, um, the increasing number of people, of young people who are living back at home. And at the end of my presentation, this, this woman who is, I think, probably of, of let's say, um, uh, Asian Canadian descent, some, some one of the Asian cultures, she came up and quite quietly said to me, so I'm like, I like your presentation, but, you know, we expect our children to stay at home until they marry. Yes. And it's not a negative. It's a very positive thing that they are part of our family. We, we don't want them to move out and they don't want to move out. And they, they are, this is part of the life cycle of our families that they stay with us until they, well, they marry or they form a permanent relationship and then they, then they leave and then we move in with them later. There's a, there's a different life cycle to the family. And Again, coming back to this notion of spirituality or mission or what makes you unstressed, when you're in, when you're living in a congruent way with your values, your culture, the stress is much, much less than if you're trying to push the, you know, push the stone up the hill constantly, trying to make things very different or, or what's atypical. Um, and, the, you know, in the same ways, I think, you know, in my own life, if it, I, I think my kids fully expected to launch at 18, they, they expected to go off to university or college and do their own thing and have those years away from – they did not expect to stay with me because that's our – that's my cultural space. Same here. Um, yes. But, yeah, and so to have insisted that they stay home until they were like 30 um, probably <laughs> would have been a really odd thing for both sides. Now, of course, that's my cultural space. Um and it has, you know, we, we, it feels congruent with who I am and, and the kids are happy and we're happy. And, you know, we found a lovely, uh, uh joking balance about what, what it should be. And I guess I mean that, you know, resilience looks really different around the world. I do research all around the world. Um, and I can say that we, we really do see these different patterns in families. And so eh, message takeaway is, you know, be good to yourselves. Uh, do with do what feels right in the value system that that most reflects who you are as people. Well, when we talk about the science of resilience and you know the elements that make us more resilient, you know that include you know good self care and all of those practices, you know maintaining a strong moral compass. At the end of the day, the resilience also comes down to perception, right? And it's not just the thinking happy thoughts or thinking good, good, good thoughts. It's the ability to reframe and manage 
what's happening in a more digestible, manageable way. Oh, yes, absolutely. Your perception of, you know, the, a simple example of that is next time your flight is delayed in an airport, if you ever experienced that, which I'm sure someone has, um, <laughs> just think about this for a second. Your stress level is direct proportion to how much, how important it is that you get to your destination. So if you're, you know, if you're going to, God help you, you know, a, a parent's funeral or you're going to a, your wedding or something like that, that flight delay, shoot, you know, is, is incredibly stressful. But your perception, you know, if you're just going, you know, just returning home from work or something, and it doesn't really matter when you get home, then your, your perception is going to be much different. And then if you think about it, even a resource like a nice, kindly uh, uh, clerk from, a, you know, someone from an agent from the airline coming along the, the line and saying, look, I'm really sorry, let's try and help you to get to your next flight. Their offer of help is going to be perceived as either trite and inconsequential if you really urgently need to get someplace, or they're going to be really appreciated if you're de-stressed. So there's always this dynamic between what's going on in our head and what we're being offered uh, in the world around us. And, you know, I do think sometimes, you know, um, keep your eyes open is a really big thing. You know, notice the resources that you have, but also have the perception to take advantage of what's uh, available. You know, sometimes I think we're, we're, we, we let our minds convince us that what's out there is not uh, accessible or available or we can't ask. You often hear that from people, oh, I could never yeah. ask. And this is often the time when actually other people don't mind being asked because part of their mission statement, their spiritual path, is actually to offer help. And yeah. we actually deny our communities the, the, the glue that holds them together um, I like to joke. By the way, I live in I live in um, uh, 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 on the East Coast, and I often joke that say we're a we're a casserole community. You, the woman down, you know, the neighbor down the down the road breaks her hip, she gets a casserole. Uh, somebody <laughs> somebody's child has you know leukemia. God forbid, they get a casserole. They get a lot of casseroles. Yeah, uh, they get a months of casseroles, and and we you know we we're that kind of community where people are are tied together, are, are, you know, and the, and the food is a gesture of saying you know you're on my radar, um, and I think sometimes you know you you gotta you have to be open to that you 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 have to be willing to say I accept you know even though you know sometimes people want to sort of withdraw and stuff they also have to understand that this is maybe a path forward, and so I often say. You know, look around your community, make sure you're open to what's available to you and take advantage of what is actually there. And that is free. Most of the time when people are offering of themselves, whether it's a casserole or to come and sit with us for an hour, it's because they want to. It's it's um, an act of human generosity. Well, it's it's very much the uh, this advice giving this 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 exchange that's to our benefit by putting ourselves into those networks. Um, and those can be, by the way online as well. I think sometimes we're thinking, you know, these days, all oh, the online world's all bad. But in fact, what we're understanding is more and more that those online worlds are also a source of great strength, potentially. I mean, there are also a lot of negative stuff that goes on there, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, the, you know, never forget that those networks are also part of your Facebook group or your whatever, you know, you're into sort of thing here, your Instagram accounts and all those kinds of other things that that do connect us to other people who potentially are resources as we're experiencing the stress of, you know, of, of our kids coming home or making job decisions and whatever, as well as at the same time that we're having to cope with elderly parents. We're nearly out of time, but there were two more points I wanted to bring up 
with you. And one is seeing opportunity in these challenges. You know, that, that really when we are going through these things, one way to become more resilient is to see the ways in which we're learning. Absolutely. I keep an eye out for, for those opportunities. If I, if I could, a very, very simple way of thinking about it is I like to think that, you know, there's four ways to change. First way, uh, you know, change your thinking, change your perceptions, focus on your own, what's going on in your head. Second way, take advantage of the resources that you already have in your world, family, friends, neighbors, uh, government systems, whatever is available, uh, education, whatever's out there that you can latch onto that can support you. The third way is create those resources if they don't exist. Reach out, find new resources, find new opportunities, you know, grow in those ed- on those edges of your life. And of course, the fourth strategy is if you're in a place that just doesn't have many resources, then the last thing you're going to have to do is simply change your expectations of what life's going to look like. <laughs> How beautifully said. <laughs> that's a bummer, but it does actually happen. And, you know, so I, I find that if people think about those four steps, you know, start with trying to change your own head. That ain't working. Exploit the heck out of the resources you have. Ask for help from what is already around. That still ain't working. Go to the next level. Start creating some new resources. Ask around. Seek out new resources, whether it's from professionals or non-professionals or whatever you need. Or the last one, if nothing still is changing and nothing's making it easier to have mom living with you in, the, in your house, then maybe it's just you're just going to have to change your expectations that this is ever going to go well and this is going to be your lot for now for the next little while. And I, I would say there might be a point five, you know, the fraction which would be to keep the humor. Oh, I love it. Yes, that's and maybe that's just a return back to the number one, which is a change of perception. And, yeah, ramp, ramp up the humor. And a lot of people cope with that as, you know, they just, you know, I find, I found, you know, I used to say I found raising teenagers required a really good sense of humor. Oh, yeah. You know, if you just, <laughs> it was a beautiful eye roll. I can't believe you just did that eye roll to me. Yes. I remember, you know? And I think that a lot of parents get through those years with just by having a good belly laugh, usually after the kids go to bed. Yeah. And the same, the same goes in the other direction, you know, with our parents, as much as we love them, however conflicted we may or may not be at the end of the day, because that conflict is there is a sort of a, a marker of the emotional investment we have with them. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think they're playing along. <laughs> I suspect they're playing along as well. That uh, there's always that tension between don't tell me what to do. And frankly, I really like the fact that you did just try and tell me what to do because it shows that you actually care for me. Yes, yes. The book we're speaking of today, you sandwich generation people out there, is Change Your World, The Science of Resilience and the True Path to Success. To learn more about the work of Dr. Michael Unger, please visit his website, michaelunger.com. On Twitter and Facebook, he is at Michael Unger, PhD. This has been good fun and really informative. Dr. Unger, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, real pleasure, Lisa. All the best to you and your listeners. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Cabin and my guests today, Rich Carlgaard and Dr. Michael Unger, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, 
and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.